0: Welcome to NREI's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. Good afternoon, David. How are you?
0: I'm doing well this week. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. All sorts of good things happening in both our worlds, I'm sure. And one thing that's happening for this podcast is you have a guest today.
0: That is correct. This episode brought on Brian Ward, who is the CEO of Trimont Real Estate Advisors. Hi, Brian.
2: David, how are
0: you? I'm doing well. You know, we're in this uh, this as well as as can be expected given, you know, 2020.
2: Yes, a year that will live in infamy, right?
0: Yeah. So I thought, you know, just to get things started, what would help is, you know, for any of our audience that doesn't know Trimont, if you could just take a minute to, um, to tell us a little bit about the firm and yourself.
2: Sure. Uh, the firm, Trimont, has been in business 30 years. It is a global commercial real estate servicer and credit manager. We have eight offices around the world. Today, we manage on behalf of our clients roughly $135 billion dollars. Uh, we are focused exclusively on commercial real estate credit. We are uh, we tend to be known as as a as a as a group that focuses more on the complex side of, of the credit spectrum. Um, we are the largest construction loan uh, credit manager today in the world. We are rated um, very highly by Standard and Poor's, Fitch, and reviewed by Kroll. Global headquarters, I would say, is really Atlanta. Our largest global office is Atlanta, but offices Dallas. Uh, Los Angeles, Kansas City, New York, London, Amsterdam, and Sydney. As for myself, um, I obviously serve as the global CEO and I sit on the board of directors. Um, In addition to my work at Trimont, I serve on the Alumni Advisory Board at Harvard Business School and the Alumni Real Estate Board at Harvard College and I'm also on the board of advisors um, at the NYU Shaq Institute of Real Estate. Uh, my entire career really has been in real estate and finance um and and more since i i've been 've been at Tremonta five years, but more on the principal side investing debt and equity capital into commercial real estate credit around the world
0: that so all of those reasons everything that you just laid out talking about the the company and your own experience is exactly why I wanted to talk to you um because just you know given you know we were just joking about it but just given the year that we're in these are the kinds of years i mean i don't know if we've ever seen one quite like this but these are the kinds of situations where commercial real estate is disrupted we're seeing all sorts of varying levels of issues across all all kinds of property types and it seems like this is the kind of year where people are going to be turning to you to be helping to work out all these situations so I just really want to hear more about what it, you know, what you're seeing, what your requests are, or things you're working through with your clients, and, and just what you can tell us about, you know, about about all that stuff.
2: For sure. Uh, so let's rewind the tape a little bit. Let's go back to really January one of this year, um, and let's kind of go through the year because I think it'll be beneficial for the audience to sort of see how things have been flowed. January began as any January would. Uh, it was robust. And uh, we were out of the gates you know, strongly in all of our markets, Asia, Pacific, Americas, and our EMEA, um, our EMEA business. Um, I would note that our EMEA business is really, as a percentage, growing most rapidly of all of our businesses as this globalization of capital uh, continues to evolve. But, but we, we come out of the gates in January. Things are roaring. Business on the performing side is, a, is as it would always be. Um, as I mentioned to you, us being the largest construction loan servicer in the world, by by way of example we uh, we have a thirty one active developments just on the island of manhattan um, and it's it 's really some of the biggest most notable projects in manhattan but but so we have this you know, tremendous presence in that space things are roaring, capital is flying capital is flying as always around the globe out of our asia pacific office um, you know we 're beginning to see the evolution of some concern with this this virus thing that is beginning to take hold and it was if you recall, it was that first couple of weeks of January where it was beginning to make headline news and sort of finding its way, but finding its way fairly lightly um, here to the States. Um, but we were, we were seeing more and more of it out of our Asia-Pacific operations. And at that time, I was asked you know, what I thought, and, and we just didn't have enough information for, to form any opinions. But it was something we, we noted that we were watching and, and would certainly be mindful of But at the time, Um, The administration was stating that there were no worries here and that the thing was isolated. And so I kind of put into back my mind, you know, a similar scenario to H1N1 that occurred a few years ago. And so we left it there. Of course, February uh, happens and things are starting to get worse and worse and worse. By mid-February, we were beginning to test our systems um, remotely, our disaster recovery systems making sure that our, our networks were running. We had enough bandwidth to accommodate employees and everything else. But I thought it was really just kind of maybe out of an abundance of precaution rather than, 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 than anything else. And then of course things dramatically went downhill the second half of February. Um, we, as a company moved to hundred percent offsite. in the first week of March, I would say we were one of the earlier ones for the U S um, and we did so because we had, at that point we had, all of our systems up and running and we felt like there was much more risk to the downside but, um, um, and that we could disrupt our service model or we ran the risk of disrupting our service model more if we tried to stay in the office and continue as is rather than executing the the disaster plan which, which we did in the first week of march and of course then from there things just spiraled dramatically so the reason I mention it is we come to the first week of march things are the business is roaring you know Tri- Trimon as a business is roaring and everything kind of hit a wall. And it hit a wall at about 100 miles an hour. And similar to the GFC, what we saw was the first kind of six to eight weeks was were, were our clients, were the capital markets trying to figure out what 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 did this all mean? What were its implications? And at that time, we were really sort of messaging, thinking, well, look, if this thing goes six or eight weeks, then I think we'll be fine and, and, and we'll sort of pick up and everybody will have lost in essence, a quarter of economic activity, but but that certainly is, is surmountable. And 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 we can both as a business, as an industry, and as a broader economy, you know, um, kind of continue on. And then of course, things just continued to get worse and worse. So call it March and April, things really just sort of stopped. They stopped on the performing side, they stopped on the non-performing side. And what I mean my non-performing side is the special servicing workouts, um I'm side of of, of of what we do as a as a credit manager servicer. Slowly we started to see some one-off transa transaction activity, but there was really no good price discovery. And to the extent transactions were, were happening, from our perspective, it was it was because something needed to happen. You had a somebody who had a repo line and, and their 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 credit ratios were out of balance and they were needing to move assets quickly to rebalance or you know things like that but by and large you know people really stood down and then of course we began to watch the the incredible sort of unfortunate sequence of events and um, really sad and unfortunate sequence of events particularly as they impacted hospitality and retail watch that unfold it was during those times that I, I should note that I, I really started to try and become a student of history and go back to the the the, the, the spanish flu pandemic in 1918 and and understand what its implications were from 1918 through 1921 and 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 just get it just generally a sense for you know how it all played out and and it was really interesting to see that the the number of similarities uh, between what they experienced then to what we've experienced now in terms of economic impact and like that's kind of you know up through april what you know and then and then we began to start to see some activity but it was pretty isolated and much more quickly than i anticipated originally we, we we saw a, a swath of, of, of assets move out of the performing space and into the non-performing special servicing, call it default world. And that was, kind of, that was kind of April, May, and even June. And it was in that window that we began to see the heavy, heavy negotiation around forbearance and modification. For us, as we monitor the roughly 3,000 positions that we manage today, you know, particularly in the hospitality and in the retail world, you know that was really that that kind of window was marked by heavy negotiation of predominantly forbearance um, not much modification um, and then as we got into the latter parts of the summer we started to see activity pick up again we started to see you know people trying to look for ways to, to, to deploy capital and, and look for opportunity I will tell you the opportunity trade is still not really on I mean pe- people um, the cap capital is still fumbling and bumbling isn't a fair thing to say because they're not fumbling and bumbling, but they're, they're kind of sitting on the sidelines. There really isn't much happening and people are sort of standing by to see how the balance of this year plays out and we probably won't really see any real activity until Q1, Q2 of next year. We, all of that being said though, we have seen the performing side of the business pick back up again. Um, in the Americas and in Europe, most notably, across our Asia Pacific business, Things are are still pretty slow. So, so let me pause there because I kind of threw a lot into that that one question, and, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully I haven't stepped too much on top of your on top of your agenda.
0: That was all like just really fascinating to sit back and listen to, especially as like an observer who, or, you know, someone that's that's observing the market and trying to write or, write about it and report or, report what's going on. Just to like kind of hear that recap of um, and some and some of that depth on, on some of these questions. Just because it has I, I do remember like, you know, very early on, you know, almost instantly people are like, Oh yeah, we're gonna have a distressed cycle, but we don't really know but but not right away. And and we're gonna have this period where things are just gonna be in delinquency or or delayed. But then it did seem like very rapidly, like the CNBS delinquency rate just like skyrocketed, especially on those retail and hospitality assets. And now I don't know. Like, but it's, it, then it's been on the flip side, like you said, like the actual, that opportunity trade seeing, you know, I think a lot of people like had the thesis that there was going to be opportunities and a lot of money that like was instantly lining up for debt funds or equity funds to, to jump on distress. But then actually seeing seeing deals come to fruition doesn't seem like we've actually had a whole lot of that yet. And, you know, so it has been one of those things I've been trying to figure out like, what is, what is the timing? What are we going to see? What, what are, what is allowing some of this stuff to play out a, a little bit longer? What are people waiting for? Yeah. So that, that's, you know, yeah. yeah so.
2: History doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes. And so if you go back to the GFC, from the beginning of the GFC, which call, call that sort of Lehman and Bear uh, Stearns, you had about seven quarters before you really began to find a market bottom. I mean, you had, you had some false sense of bottom very early on following the GFC. I would say the rhyme here is somewhat similar. I, do, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we are in very uncharted waters. However, if you ask me to make a bet, I would say that we will continue in some sort of forbearance, uh, discovery, fact gathering, whatever you want to call it, mode for the next few quarters. I, don't, I, think, I think that unfortunately, sadly, there is yet another shoe to drop. I think that shoe could drop as soon as Q2, Q3, uh, yeah, Q, call it Q2, late Q2 of next year. I think that there will continue to be discussions, fumbling and bumbling with respect to forbearance and mods and everything else that will go on for several more quarters. Um, but I think I think that unfortunately, there is yet to be material pain that is gonna come. The, the obvious one is you know, hospitality. Hospitality is fundamentally, for the most part, I mean, I'm generalizing, but fundamentally crushed. And we'll, we'll really be going through incredibly difficult times and some restructuring, there's gonna be some hard decisions that happen. Retail, you know, retail has been going through its, its machinations for years. I also should note that is, in my opinion, this health crisis, this pandemic, has been, a, has been a great accelerator, a great accelerator of trends that were already in motion. I mean, you see that playing out, the acceleration of e-commerce and its trend, I and mean, the acceleration of its impacts on, on traditional um, brick-and-mortar retail, the acceleration of industrial and fulfillment and logistics and proximity of those factors, accelerators around technology, a technology and the like around alternative forms of delivery mechanisms. We're, not, we're obviously probably at least a decade away on driverless cars and the like, but just the thinking and, and what's happening around that space and you see it playing out even in the, in the equity markets today in terms of its impacts on, on stocks that are really geared towards technology and the, and the delivery of these components of our economy that will become critical for the next generation. So one of the things that COVID has done has become a great accelerator of, of this change. And like, like I was just saying, you know, unfortunately, retail and hospitality are just going to get hammered. Um, um, in terms of is this a great accelerator around how we consume office space in the future, I think it's too soon to call. I think that, uh, first of all, office is a little bit more protected because it it's, it has longer term leases. I think businesses generally are um, poking around the edges at what the alternatives might be for how we consume and use office space. And we, of course, are with eight offices around the world at Trimont exploring that. You know, one, one of the interesting stories that I will share as I was chatting with a close friend of mine, and he's a senior partner in a law firm, 40-year career, and 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 they were talking about really retooling how they use office space um, as, a, as a firm. And I'm thinking to myself, dang, the lawyers are the last bastion of the consumers of office, and, and if lawyers are thinking about uh, doing it a different way, then, then there may be something in there to, to read in terms of the longer-term implications. But but generally, I would say it's a little too soon to call the ball on, on office. I'm nervous about multifamily. Um, I'm particularly nervous um, about the C, class C and class B spaces of multifamily and, and their exposure to hourly wage earners. And I'm particularly nervous about some of the data that I've seen come out of, for example, there's a really interesting Harvard Brown study um, on the na- nature of this K-shaped recovery and the widening of the gap um, between low income and, and middle and higher income. And I'm concerned about how it might reveal itself with respect to to C&B multifamily. We'll see. But um, again, I think that 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 won't show itself until next year at the soonest. But real estate's going to go through some some tricky times. Fortunately for the market, for the broader markets, there's still a ton of capital out there with not a lot of great yield alternative. And so uh, I think that there remains a, a fairly abundant, a source of capital. Of course, we've seen what the central banks are doing with respect to monetary policy and rates. I suspect that's going to remain incredibly accommodative. Um, and my last comment um, I'll make is um, before you know I take more questions is I am highly skeptical of Chairman Powell's comments around their views on accommodative uh, monetary policy. I think it's easy to say it right now and say, hey, we're going to be accommodative for years or whatever it is, you know, but it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. The reality of it is, is that the facts may present concerns around inflation. Inflation, And if that's the case, you know, the, 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 the central bank will have to react. The central banks around the world will have to react. They may be a little more patient, but they're not going to be a ton more patient, in my opinion.
0: A couple of immediate questions is, aside from, you know, some of those uh, you you kind of went through your thoughts on some of these different sectors and retail and industrial are doing and multifamily office. In addition to that, you know we are also I'm getting so much speculation and and pitches around suburban versus urban as a thesis now too around like this idea that you know people are there's clearly like you know a lot of people moving out of New York City apartments and and moving into the the suburbs at the moment and. There are the, all these anecdotes about apartments in Manhattan now offering three months free free rent, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's like there's something there, but I'm still, but I, but I, but I am curious about like whether that's, if it's also too early to call like something around uh, a, a seismic shift around suburban and urban balance, both for multifamily or residential and you know even office use, like whether as part of the office strategy companies are reassessing whether they want to have CBD versus suburban office space. So that's one question. And then another, when we are looking at the the level of capital or the amount of capital that's in the market that may be looking at commercial real estate, are there specific trends in terms of like the kinds of capital, like private equity versus REIT versus institution versus high net worth, like that may be looking, you know, are, are there any trends in the kind of investor that is going to be interested in commercial real estate opportunities on either the you know the the debt and the equity sides that that that, that you're seeing.
2: So let's take them in order. Um, in terms of the question of of the flight to the suburbs and its implication for cities such as New York and London and the like, um, it is true. Um, based upon the data that I'm seeing, there are some concerning uh, facts uh, showing up in terms of leases and lease renewals lease renewal statistics. Do recall back in the GFC, everybody said that the suburbs were dead, and and that that uh, you know pe- people you know pe- people would really want to kind of move to more urban types of structures, and that people wouldn't want to own homes anymore. All those grand predictions, uh, m- most of which a- ended up being kind of false. There there are fundamental components of, of of us as humans that that are that don't change that quickly in terms of. Do we want to be in this, you know, do we want to have a house and have a place to raise our kids and, and all of those things? And oftentimes the answer is yes, yeah, we do. And similarly, on the flip side, I wouldn't be too quick to bet against New York City and central London. So I do think that they are in for some near-term hardship as we go through this and people try to sort all of this out. But to say that you're going to go long against uh, New York or Manhattan, I think is, um, is a bet I wouldn't make. Um, I, and I similarly would say the same thing. I, I wouldn't make that bet against London, but 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 it's quite possible that that some attitudes you know will change. I think I think it, in part it may depend on how long this goes. If our molecular structure really begins to change, and I and I'm saying that just kind of you know making up an analogy here, um, you know in terms of how we think about things, then then, then maybe. But I'm, I'm kind of a skeptic. It's quite, you know, hopefully hopefully we're out of this thing by kind of next spring, late spring of next year. And, and my hunch is that the people will be gung-ho to try and get back to the, the, a life that has some semblance of what they knew previously. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll see there. I, I'm just not willing, again, I'm not willing to make long-term predictions on that one. On your second question around capital, Kind of answer it and, and pull me back if I get too far off, because I think there are some really interesting long-term trends happening there. And, and this is sort of, again, this great accelerator comment. I believe that for several years, we have been seeing long-term a fundamental shift to non-bank lending and, and essentially what I call bank retrenchment, traditional bank retrenchment. Um, and, and I think that, that that will continue to be the case here, is the acceleration of non-bank lending will continue to grow for the next generation for commercial real estate generally. Um, and I think that banks will retrench and focus more on, on doing what banks do best. And so, um, which is more in the short term end of the spectrum, I, I think that, that that it presents incredibly exciting opportunities um, and it allows people to really focus efficiently on doing what they do best on both both sides of the balance sheet in terms of who provides capital. So. So I would say there's a very much a long-term trend um, around bank retrenchment and the growth of non-bank lending. I think that's happening globally. Uh, I think it, it began in, in, in the Americas. It, it then began to accelerate across the EMEA region and Asia Pacific is, is a little bit slower to be picking it up but you're gonna see a pickup. up. It's actually one of the theses around why we went um, and opened up an Asia Pacific office out of Sydney is, is because of the dominance in in the broader Australian Southern Pacific region of really only four banks between Australia and New Zealand. So I think that you're gonna see that fundamental trend. I am doubtful that you will see material retrenchment in capital generally into commercial real estate, as I said before, because I don't see a lot of great alternatives. I think we'll have to see in terms of how international capital flows go forward here. We obviously saw a massive increase in international capital flows you know, go on for let's call it the better part of a decade, and that that is changing for the time being. Whether it changes long term or not, I am doubtful it will, because I think that the world's a small place, and and capital will flow globally and continue to seek yield wherever it can, where opportunity wherever it can, and for better or worse, um, it's a small world, and so capital will continue to to really seek those opportunities. Maybe it's an opportunity to kind of. You know, throw in my personal opinions in terms of in terms of the situation we find ourselves in is indeed it's a small world and we are all in this together. Um, and the sooner that we attack this and become aligned as a human race around the challenges that we are facing with respect to this, the better we will be prepared for the next time this happens. Um, and so my hope is, is that we can figure this out and and the sooner we begin to solve those types of problems, the, the, the frankly the, the the quicker we get we get back to doing the things that we all want to do. This crisis has been horrible, right? It's been just awful for the for the unfortunate percentage of those that are really impacted because of health and their families and loved ones. And of course, we've talked about business and its implications for hotel and retail and and the airlines and travel and everything else. It's been it's just been it's been terrible. But there's also been presented a window, and I would challenge your listeners to think about this window, which is a window to show an opportunity, you know, for great leadership and how we come together in these challenges and how we lead, how we nurture young talent and develop it, how we help how we help students through this time and this massive disruption in their life, and how we come together um, and and test and advance new ideas, begin to improve ourselves through this challenge, and so. While this has been terrible, I also see massive opportunity to, to learn as leaders. Um, for myself, personally, every day, the chance to get better as a CEO and think about how you lead through, through crisis, it forges opportunity. And, and so I, I, I guess I wanted to throw that out there only because there are things that will be good that come from this. We just may not see them just yet.
0: Yeah, just to kind of then bring it down to that level as sort of a last section here, because um, yeah, before we wrap up, yeah, but what has that been like? You know, we, we're talking a lot about, you're talking so much about just the, the marketing conditions and all those great insights. But yeah, on like that personal level as a CEO of a company with employees and people that you're used to working with in one way that you've had to work with a different way, what, is, what has it been like doing that remotely? How, how much are your offices... Are some of your offices back in person now? I know for our companies, we've got some level, you know, depending on ge- geography where people are going back in. I still, I have not actually gone back to, I'm in Brooklyn and New York and our New York office very modestly open, but I have not gone back yet. I'm continuing to work remotely and work with my team remotely. But, you know, I just like to hear that too, that it like, like just as like how it's been like for all of us to kind of get to, to go through this and with the people that, that you've been working with for years and then have, having to do this together in a, in a new way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So taking, taking the last question first, um, we are not back. We have poked around it a little bit. Um, we, we did um, go back just sort of on a test basis in Sydney, but we started to see infection rates start to spike, not in our own office, but around in the community. And so we pulled back from that. Um, um, obviously in London we are not back in New York we're not back in Atlanta we're not back Dallas we're not back Um, and and really the the reason there is is that we are we are functioning as well as we can we are on a day-to-day basis meeting the needs of our clients Um, we are servicing the needs of our clients and my fear is really the risk to the downside if I got that wrong if I if I started pushing everybody back and all of a sudden we started getting People who uh, were getting sick um, in, in a significant way, I then run the risk of disrupting the service model. It's 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 inconvenient right now. It's not ideal right now, but that's that's better than really messing it up. And and so so I've taken the view that I'm going to be more conservative. Um, I'm not going to be the first the first CEO to, to bring its people back. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna listen. I'm obviously going to try and do my best. respond to the requests and needs of our clients. If our clients need us, you know, to be physically in a place, then we will do so, but we will do so as judiciously as we possibly can, um, and and as conservatively as we possibly can. This thing is incredibly real. I will share with you um, the incredibly sad news that uh, yesterday Trimont lost its first employee to to this virus um, and it uh, was a person who got sick only four days ago and and, wow. and very sadly passed away and so the Trimont the Trimont family is grieving um, and this is very near and dear to us we had some other folks get sick but but this is a reminder that this this virus is vicious for some it's vicious for others they can they can recover quickly and, and move on but but um. So it reinforces my desire to be conservative um, in terms of the approach, and uh, so that that's how we're seeing that. In terms of the question around leadership, for for me, since I couldn't be with our people and I couldn't see them, and it's something, by the way, that I, I would say in normal times I really enjoy. I enjoy being in our offices and 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 being around the world and seeing our people and interfacing with our clients and. Having an ear to the ground and learning what's going on in Sydney or in London or you know Munich or New York or whatever, and that something that I really love about my job. Instead, what we've done is, is I would say we've been hyper virtual communicators. From doing weekly or quasi weekly blogs, um, I, I I do too. Um, I host uh, I host video live videos at lunch yeah, a couple times a month. My entire team around the world. Unfortunately, our Sydney folks don't get to participate. Much because of time zone, but but um, but just trying to be very visible and very communicative, um, and because this these are times of just um, immense uncertainty for people, and just that kind of constant communication around uh, what we're doing, I find it's important to be transparent. Uh, people don't want they don't want BS, but I also want to make sure that people um, I leave people with a sense of of hope and. And a, and a clear sense of direction about where we're going, what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're playing this, what our strategies are, both near-term and long-term. And it's that type of, of, of just constant communication over and over and over again that, that has been really, I think, helped our people get through it. I will tell you that, that we're by far from perfect. Um, we're, we're, you know, I'd say areas where we are weak or perhaps in the areas of Nurturing our younger talent and helping them through these challenges. I mean, it's just hard to it's hard to develop young careers when you're on VC all day long. We're doing our darndest, but there's probably a lot of room for improvement there. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is is that we we've also used this opportunity to focus in on some things that are really important to us. and and, and that's that's it's really about that's about inclusion and diversity. Mm-hmm. I say inclusion first um, because for for Trimont, we feel like if we get inclusion right, we will always get diversity right. Um, and diversity doesn't necessarily mean inclusion. And so we're really f- using this time to focus on inclusion and hopefully drive its impacts with respect to diversity.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for all of those candid insights and thoughts on, and you know, condolences on the Trimont. Sad to hear that. Unfortunately, this has just been, I, I think we've all just, we, we know people we are, friends, family, your co- you know, friends of friends, it's just touched so many people. So it's just been such a, it's just been so devastating on that level aside from these other ways that it's devastating. So I think that the way that you put it was so right about it. It's just been, yeah, horrific and horrible and, you know, just a terrible thing to, to be living through. But I appreciate, you know, the, your candor, what you've talked about from your company level and these insights that you've uh, provided about the market. I, I really thank you so much for
1: your time. Thank you very much. David and Brian, this was an amazing podcast. So much great information. Brian, again, from, from our entire team, our condolences, condolences to you and yours. That is, it is devastating. And I know that that's something that you're dealing with as a leader in your, in your company. So thank you so much for that. David, great job. Wonderful guest today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. And the last thank you, of course, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodimer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at NREI, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. And we'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NREI or Informa. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only.